Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wiengrzyński and I will be your host. Hello everybody and welcome to the Fire Science Show episode 53. My name is Wojciech and for the last year I've been interviewing or maybe even interrogating some leading fire safety experts from the world of science, engineering, industry and other fields that impact ours to learn what truly matters in delivering fire safety to building people environment and our society and i must say I've, I've learned a lot that was the mission of the podcast to learn as much as possible and share this learning process with you so maybe you can enjoy it and learn a bit together with me and i must say this year was an amazing effort i've interviewed so many fantastic people and I've broadened my horizons so much I, I would never expect it. So for today's episode, I thought that it's time to summarize some learnings done and try, find, identify and tell you the number one thing that I have learned. And that thing is, of course, I'm not going to tell you now. You have to listen to the episode, but it, it's worth it. Trust me. So in this episode, I'm going back to some of the best podcast moments that will help me tell you the story of why this particular thing is, in my opinion, the number one learning from the podcast and actually maybe even number one skill we need to have to create a fire safe world. To start the journey, let's touch the subject of timber in fire. That has been the absolutely number one topic in the podcast so far. With the Timber episodes, with Danny Hopkins, with uh, Felix Weissner, with Daniel Brandon, they all together generated so much traffic in the podcast, like nothing else. And there's a good reason for that. You know, Timber's exciting, Timber's new, Timber's interesting, and everyone is talking about it. And no one really has a great idea how to do it holistically. Well, maybe we do, but it's not that we're listened. <laughs> that's, that's kind of funny twist in here. And to start with timber and maybe the problems that are generated in the world, the challenges that lie within, I would like to give the voice to Danny, who has identified it fairly well, in my opinion. And as you will hear, the issue lies not only within the knowledge of science, but actually in the environment we've created. So yeah, here's Danny Hopkin from episode 18 on engineered timber in fire. So the first challenge, I guess, is in understanding the, the, the remit of the common codes and standards that we apply in design. And I think a, a real challenge is the competency of the people designing buildings. So we have codes and standards that in their origin have, have come from non-combustible buildings. They were, they were designed to deliver an adequate level of safety for concrete enclosures, for, for steel frames, for brickwork, for other forms of masonry. And so a lot of concepts we have in building design, things like fire resistance, as you mentioned, are, are premised on the structure not becoming involved as a source of fuel. The very early mass timber buildings, particularly in the UK, kind of assumed that those rules and, and guidance that apply for structures that don't burn 
can simply be extrapolated to, to structures where they're contributing as a source of fuel. And, and we know uh, that's absolutely not true. And there's been some great papers that have been written on it. You've got the We Need to Talk About Timber mm-hmm. uh, lecture by Angus Law and the, the corresponding paper in, in The Structural Engineer. So the first challenge has been in educating people in, in understanding when they're applying a, a code or a standard, what they're getting and, and where yep. the scope of that ultimately run, runs its course and where timber fits into that discussion. And that's not been as easy a challenge to address as, as you might think. And, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. Structure and, uh, or fire engineers, to, to start with, to my mind at least, not actually that proficient at dealing with combustion problems. <laughs> so a lot of fire engineering consultants, at least, kind of operate in this little bubble of, I think Angus Law and Graham Spinardi defined it as sort of code speak. They're you, you develop a, an expertise being able to read back what codes and standards are telling you to do. So there was almost like a, a memorizing and interpretation of a series of rules and regurgitating those back to design teams, which doesn't help you design mass timber buildings. You have to understand fire dynamics quite well, and you have to have a, definitely a good understanding of the combustion processes. So already you may see where this is going. Fire science and fire engineering is inherently a complicated matter. Matter that is difficult to understand even by great scientists. None of us understands the whole of it. And yet we are expected to give design that is fire safe. We're expected to craft buildings that will not burn and will not take lives when they're burned and will not endanger the environment and so on. So in order to fulfill this goal, to fulfill this role in our societies, we've built up this masterful set of codes and standards, which at some point even overtook our ability to engineer. As Danny mentioned, the code speak has developed where you would read the code and argue about what this clause of the code means and how to fulfill it. And people would find creative ways to go around it. People would do literally anything to go above the code to gain a competitive advantage over their competitors, because that sometimes makes or breaks the contracts awarded in the built industry. You know, I've once heard uh, someone told me it's a Chinese uh, saying, but I'm, I'm not sure if that's the origin. But it, it goes like this. The law is like a fence. The tiger will jump over it. The snake will sneak under it. But at least the cattle does not spread. And in a way, we see that every day, tigers jumping above our codes and guidelines, trying to push for solutions. Some sneaky ones trying to go around them, confusing everyone. And most of us engineers who do not really have a better choice than just follow these these guidelines. But does following the guidelines really provide safety as we expect it? Is this sufficient to really build a fire-safe building? Is it sufficient to design it? That's a really tough question because you're not having a a wall of fire that you have to design and, and be done with it. Your design affects everything in the building. And here, let me give voice to Ali Ashrafi, my guest in episode 21. Ali had a brilliant talk about resilient fire design with firefighters in mind. But this aspect of how do we build buildings, how do we design, was 
always there in the background of his talk. And, and this is a fragment that really resonates with what I'm trying to convey in this episode. Design is never done in a vacuum, right? So when we come to do the design, it is within a specific jurisdiction and there are codes and standards. And there's a reason for that. When you look at the process mm -hmm. of how those uh, codes and guidances are put together, you see all these stakeholders coming to the table and having the discussion because that should happen. That's absolutely right. Um, each of these stakeholders has this perspective that's relevant and valuable. And it's important to have those dialogues so that they're explicit about it. And for FIRE, just having the question is very important. The, what One of the things I'm hoping to highlight is no one asks that question of what the objective is, right? Yeah. You are doing certain things in the code and there's a presumption of a level of safety. And certainly there's a level of safety, certainly for more common buildings. That kind of resonates, huh? And Ali went even further telling me about his expertise and the experience with the design. As you try to design more and more, move away from the code speak, you will meet more complex issues, bigger problems, bigger issues. So to put it in a better context, we were discussing the role of fire resistance as a method to distinguish the properties of structural components of buildings, how, how it works, how it's made, what makes a fire test and uh, what's the output of it, which is the fire resistance class in minutes. But does it truly convey safety? Does it lead to us meeting our objective, whatever our objectives are? Let's listen to Ali for once again on his take on this topic. By training, I'm a structural engineer. And when I'm looking at fire, that's where my expertise lies. But one thing that is really key here is these are complex, multifaceted issues. And so no matter where each of us is mm. coming from, what the discipline is, we should be designing in the context of overall safety goals. And so there should be dialogue between these designs. These are not individual pieces of design, they should talk to each mm. other. And the way that most designs are today, that doesn't happen. Yeah. I want to add that when it comes to safety of the structure in fire, what we do right today, the common practice, which is a prescriptive practice, and you mentioned mm. it's based on the fire resistance terminology, is really not explicit. So in a fire resistance terminology, you take specific pieces of a building and you put them in a furnace for some duration and you say it passed and that's great. But that actually doesn't tell you anything about how the building as a system is going to respond to the fire. And if I want to bring it back to the question of firefighter safety, I, I see really three things that are key mm -hmm. and they should speak to each other. One of them is stability of the building. The building is the battlefield where you're fighting a fire. If someone's going in, they need to make sure that the building will not collapse in them. That is the baseline, right? So the structural stability is a really important piece. The second piece is evacuation, right? So we're mm -hmm. doing all of this because we want to save lives. So here we go. We have some objectives. We want the firefighters to be safe. We want people to escape the building. 
And there's many more structural stability, economic prosperity, business continuity, and other things that would rhyme with this. But yeah, we have goals, we have objectives, and we have codes. We have laws that tell us how to design. We run into problematic issues where our codes demand from us something that other engineers would really not like to do. And I mean, it's already hard within your own ecosystem, within your own country, most likely. But once you start crossing borders, once you start looking at fire safety as a sort of a global phenomenon or global need, maybe, you start to notice that these challenges, they are everywhere and everywhere they are different. And it makes engineering really hard for those who try to pursue international careers. Novel problems open, novel challenges occur. You have to deal with things you sometimes never deal within your own country or legislative framework. But then again, if you think about it, the fire is the same. There's no difference in fire in Poland versus the one in the UK. Well, maybe there are, but not at the groundbreaking level. And that was something I've discussed with Benjamin Ralph, um, head of fire safety at Foster's Plus Partners, in episode 15. It was a great talk with uh, someone who was educated as a fire engineer, someone who has been a fire scientist for a good part of his life, and then ventured into a huge architectural company to build a career in fire engineering worldwide, bringing a very unique view to the field. So, yeah, you need to listen what Ben had to say about the internationalization of fire problems. So it's interesting because people will often say um, in meetings, in workshops, sort of a little bit flippantly of, well, fire is everywhere all over the world. And you could go a step further than that and you could say fire science is the same. Yeah. Uh, like you say, the, you know, the universal constant is the same and heat release rate per unit areas give or take the same. Okay, the furnishings might be a little bit different or whatever it is. Yes, fire science is the same. But I would say that as soon as you start to talk about safety and you start to talk about definitely design, but safety and risk, and, and you start to get into a world of acceptability and reasonability, and those things change. You know, acceptance of risk changes internationally and culture changes internationally. So I'd say that fire science is constant wherever you are, but fire safety does change. Combine with that very differing um, approaches with respect to the legal side of mm. fire. So, you know, okay. compliance and countries all over the world have taken a whole bunch of different ways. Um, some extraordinarily prescriptive based, uh, tick the box, you know, implicit safety type yeah. building design. And then some on the other side. I mean, not necessarily explicit safety, but before what we like full, to call full, full BBD, stuff. yeah. That's it, yeah. Yeah, and sort of everywhere in between, really. And to go deeper on this subject of international fire safety problems, it's not only that countries would have different codes and standards, but they, they even have different preferences. There are topics that are important in one part of the world which would not be that important in another there are things related to this fundamental expected level of safety that are completely different from country to country. There's one thing you realize very quickly as well when you start to work 
um, you know, dip your toe all over the world is that there are things that some countries, and by that I mean broadly codes really, some countries really care about and um, the level of implicit or explicit safety that's thrown at certain things is much, much higher in comparison to other parts of the world. So a typical example might be here in the UK, we now have for the first time in a very long time, prescriptive at law level, at legislation level to do with external walls. And of course, yeah. that, you know, that's level, that came about because of a, um, a terrible tragedy. And that's something that's very, very local, very, very specific. Whereas you look at other parts of the world um, and they really care about compartmentation in car parks, for example, because mm-hmm. there was a large fire where sadly a whole bunch of people lost their life in a car park fire. So the idea around design by disaster um, okay, has, a, yeah. has a geographical variability, which is interesting. And then, I mean, the, really one of the key, key challenges of my current role is we're an international organization designing, constructing, building all over the world. You know, what, what's the best solution? Because there's international variation. And if, if there's something that's missed for whatever reason, mm. uh, local jurisdiction, we're in a position to see that. We've got that international oversight to ask those questions about, hold on a minute, why, why in this country can we design a building made of X, Y, Z? You know, those sorts of pretty challenging questions, actually. But that doesn't make sense. Do we really have a different safety in different parts of the world? really need our buildings to be built to different specification everywhere to provide fire safety. Well, it seems we do not really have a good measure of what fire safety is and how much of it we need. We don't really understand what influences that. And even if we do, it's very difficult to put these factors into a meaningful discussion with other stakeholders. So in the podcast, I was looking for the foundations of safety and I've talked with many experts on the risk because that's a field which really tries to go deep on what safety and what risk and what hazards are for the building. And in one of these discussions, a really great one, where in episode 23, I've hosted uh, Jaime Cadena Gomez and David Lange from University of Queensland. We've discussed Jaime's approach the risk, which was by defining the maximum allowable damage, an interesting concept itself. But in that conversation, we've touched a very interesting part about the baseline level of safety. And let me ask David to tell you what he meant about that. It's almost looking at the inherent risk in a building. So it's almost taking a concept from another from other engineering disciplines to understand yeah. what is the inherent risk? What is the, when you strip out all of the controls, all, the, all of the fire safety features in a building, there are controls that help to reduce the risk. They help to manage the, both the consequences and the likelihood of the occurrence of a significant scenario, a scenario that challenges the fire safety strategy in a building. If you strip okay. all of those out, then what you're left with is the inherent risk that's inside of the building once everything else has failed. And that's that's really the yeah. concept that, that Jaime's calculated, tending towards, I think, probably the best way to put it. Once you've calculated the inherent risk, then you can start to put back in the controls to optimize. So there we are. A baseline level of safety of a building stripped out of everything, like the most fundamental minimum amount of safety the building architecture provides. We can go only up from there to understand what the the building really has to offer in terms of safety. But safety is not just a building, you know. 
I had this episode with Ryan Mitchum, episode 20, and I could call it the mother of all podcast episodes because it was probably the most meaningful conversation I've had in my life. And Brian has positioned Fire Safety as a social technical system, as a system that overlaps the built environment, the, the social aspects of, of the society, the personal preferences of a person, the way how we design, the way how we build, all the things all together that lead to the creation of the building and the role that that, that building has in our society. And within that episode, Brian has put forward an interesting thought that when we try to define the level of safety in a building, well, there's quite an uncertain aspect into that, and that is humans. How we affect the safety of our building, do we even model that? Do we take it into account? And that's quite fundamental, you know, especially when you go back to the beginning of the episode and the discussion of timber, where the role of firefighters, as you have heard in the episode with Daniel Brandon, is so fundamental. The human operations are one of the most important contributors to safety in the building. But I cannot tell you that better than Brian. So let me pass the voice to him on what he meant about the human interference in the fire scenarios. People contribute to the severity of fires by the contents that they put in buildings, how they treat things mm -hmm. such as do they block open smoke or fire doors. And so you have this human component that adds a complexity to what the fire scenario and the fire significance is going to be in any given building, which increases the uncertainty in prediction because you have this huge variability in the population. And so people are and always have been kind of a focus of protection in fire safety and again, The fire service plays a role in, in keeping the emphasis on people. And if you look to earthquake engineering or wind engineering, it's not that they ignore people, but they're very much in the paradigm of the probability of failure of the system or a mm. significant part of the building. So the focus is the building and not the people. And what's the mm. reliability of the structural system given different load combinations. And so you never see a building regulation or a standard talk about explicitly uh -huh. the life loss side of it. Whereas in fire, it's always talking about what's the, how many people are going to die? What's the probability of 10 or more people dying, which is by NFPA kind of a, a large event. So we have this important source of uncertainty in our design scenarios, uh, which are people. We have people which are the target for the um, safety of the building. We have another group of people, firefighters, who are expected to enter the building and rescue it. So there's a lot of human operation, a lot of involvement on the design fire and the design scenario. But why it's this important? In episode 48, I've invited Mike Spearpoint to talk about dangers and car parks and our discussion has eventually twisted towards the design scenarios and their importance in fire engineering. And this concept of the consistent level of crudeness has emerged, which in my opinion is very interesting when you think how engineering is done and how our analysis are performed. So Mike has discussed the role of fire scenarios in our analysis. 
I, I, I love how you position design fire as the, the most fundamental thing. And uh, I agree with Vito that it is the, the most important thing in the fire engineering. And if you think about what would be the error in your engineering judgment if you mistake the heat release rate, <laughs> let's say you take two megawatts where you should have taken eight. What's the impact of that on the outcome compared to like a choice of turbulence method or choice of the mesh size in your CFD? And yet people uh, spend so much time justifying these minuscule choices and they just go, and the fire was like seven megawatts yeah, because we felt, because it was Wednesday. Yes. <laughs> we could end up on a different soapbox about the, um, I mean, I mean, again, this is not something that, that I, I invented. It's a term that I've, I adopted. I got it from, Professor from Andy Buchanan, but I think he got it from a, one of his colleagues, David Elms, this idea of consistent level of crudeness. So if you know, there's no point going into a lot of detail in one parameter or one element if another element is going, you're going to have to make a sort of broad judgment. It doesn't make sense. So yes, you, you want to get that consistent level of crudeness in any calculation. Otherwise, yeah, something will have a very little difference, but you might spend a long time worrying about it. Uh, whereas something else, you've just picked a number from thin air, but that might have a really big impact on the outcome. And so these are sorts of questions that uh, myself and many others sort of wonder about. Or now and again, try and do some simulations or calculations or try and demonstrate it. So you see that design fire will be probably the most influential aspect of your fire engineering analysis. So that's... A very tough decision to make, and often we do it without really discussing that with other counterparts, without really totally investigating the potential fire developments in our building. And here again, the risk aspects, the risk methods in fire can really shine because they give you this broader knowledge. I would like to come back to the episode 23 with Jaime Cadena Gomez, where he shared with me his thoughts about building design fires and treating design fire not as an input, but as an output to your analysis. So if you really want to go down that path, the requirements that you will have for the professionals involved are completely different. You're not only talking about modeling a fire, you're talking about constructing a whole basis of knowledge of both likelihood and consequences. And one key thing that I remember Jose telling me halfway through the PhD is uh, you have to remember that fire scenarios are not an input. Fire scenarios are an output. You start with an idea of where you might have a fire and you start exploring what that could lead to and you end up with the fire scenario. But you might have to do some calculations and a lot of brain work to actually figure out what the scenario is going to be. So... That's a major difference between uh, a fire, say, in a chemical plant and a fire in a building. The scenarios are not evident. So you cannot just say, oh, design fires and check that step is covered. No, they actually require iteration and uh, checking those blind spots. So we're almost there at the one most important skill you have to have. And no, it is not crafting the design fires. If you think about it, this creation of the design fires, the creation of engineering design of the fire safety of the building, this holistic puzzle that we need to set to make the that the building is fire safe, it's kind of overwhelming. But is it really necessary? Maybe there are some shortcuts to 
make this better, make this easier, make this quicker based on our knowledge, intuition, previous experiences. I really hate to say that, but codes and standardization come to my mind in here. I think there's a place for every tool we have and there will be buildings which will require this amazing level of engineering, master crafting the design scenarios and going through the full risk analysis to really understand the basis of the risk in that building. But that's for sure not for all of the buildings. Well, maybe we actually focus too much on this aspect of fire safety engineering. It was something that, again, Brian Mitchum has brought in the discussion. And it was a very powerful and eye-opening. If you look to the system safety literature and, and some of the you know, constructs that are used in other areas, let's, you know, Take road safety just as an example. And in the Nordic mm -hmm. countries and elsewhere, they have a vision zero objective to try to reduce the number of accidents that, you know, would lead to a death due to traffic accident. And so the aim is to put in designs within the system to control for the type of accident or incident that could occur that would be a, a an indicator or a predicator of that fatality. So the focus is on putting in safety systems, safety boundaries, minimizing the potential for the unacceptable event to occur, rather than calculating or estimating all the scenarios that would necessarily lead to the unaccepted or unacceptable loss. So if we change that over to fire, maybe we spend far too much time trying to create scenarios that address situations that, yes, would result in a fire, but may not be the fire that we're going to see or is suitably representative enough. So what if we kind of took a step backwards to the idea of the most worst credible case fire event or the maximum foreseeable loss scenario type that the insurance industry mm. uses. And the design is focused on putting in safety barriers that are intended to, you know, keep the loss within the limits. Maybe we're modeling situations that we're trying to understand, but we don't actually need to understand to end up with mm -hmm. the level of safety or the implementation of safety measures that would increase the safety to a socially acceptable level. But that's a much different way of thinking than performance-based design is currently you know, being practiced. So here we are, as fire engineers, deal with enormous complexity of physics, architecture, systems, social constructs, and hard aspects that influence fire safety in our buildings. It's a hell of a puzzle to complete. And to be honest, we are capable of holistically viewing it. We're capable of masterfully crafting the design solutions for our buildings. After one year of dealing with this podcast, of talking with my fellow colleagues, experts in the field, I feel the knowledge is here. The models are here. Every year we're better and better at understanding fire physics, fire dynamics, the consequences of fires, the ways how to prevent fires. We have solutions for almost anything. 
yet it is so hard to implement them. And why is that? I think one thing that we need to really do more now, immediately, is to learn how to communicate efficiently. I think communication with our stakeholders, with architects, with authorities, with firefighters, with society even, this communication seems to be the number one missing element of moving fire safety forward. So many people in the podcast said that we live in silos, we build in the silos, we close fire safety engineering to other disciplines. So many have said that people don't understand what we are doing, they don't understand how fire safety can be achieved in their buildings. They do not understand what we try to say to them, which means it's not that they are stupid, it's us who lack the communication skills. But keep in mind, communication is a two-way route. You don't communicate by evangelizing the designers of your building or don't want to go on a crusade and push the knowledge on them. We need to communicate in a way that they understand why and what we are trying to achieve. And to understand, we also need to learn how to listen. We need to learn how to understand their problems so we can give solutions for them, not solutions for us. And this need for communicate, the reason why we need it, is something that I've touched with Jimmy Johnson, the next president of SFPE, in episode 24, that you also need to listen, one then in which we've talked about who is a fire safety engineer. So let's hear what Jimmy had to say about communicating. The key is, is communication skills, is what you said, because mm. you're forced to communicate the same problem or the same solution to such a wide range of different people that someone has, as you said, no skill, no technical skill at all. They're handling a permitting, a license, or a money issue. They're buying the components to something. And to the far, far end, to another engineer, maybe the, the third-party reviewer of the project, which is a fire engineer, and then mm, to, to the authorities that, that might know a lot or might not know a lot, that we have to approve this whole thing. So I think that's a key skill that is necessary. You need to be able to communicate uh, really well. You convey the idea and the solution so everyone understands it. And I really liked one thing that you said there. Well, you, you don't need to have any license about if you have a lot of money to do whatever you want with that money. Yeah? If there's someone keen to invest in this and you convince them, for example, that this is acceptable and it will work, you better be sure that that will work then later on. A lot of pre-work is needed, especially with authorities. Before you actually start any project, make sure that it will be to some degree acceptable, that you have a path that is planned, that you can actually convince them and that they are open to these ideas because that is all what performance-based design is about. You're, you're not complying with the rules. You're deviating from the rules. So unless that is conveyed in, in, in a straight manner and, and, and a serious and, and open way, the project will not go forward. So I think communication is the number one key, as you said. And that's it. So in the world of complexity, in the world of really difficult fire design, in the world where it is so hard to define how the fire will go in a building, what will happen and why it is important. In the world where country borders change the 
level of safety expected from the buildings. In a world where going from country to country, you will meet different codes, different standards, different expectations, different levels at which you have to discuss the fire safety. In the world that it may be so hard to provide a universal answer to what fire safety is, the number one thing is to communicate, to listen, to think, and provide answers that really respond to the problems we have. If we lack objectives, let's talk about objectives. Let's start a discussion. Let's find what's important in our law system. What do we want to protect? What do we want to expect from the buildings? We know how to achieve that. We know what can be achieved. Let's open the discussion and let's talk it over. If you are the world's most brilliant fire scientist, but you have never talked with people who in the end will be using the one thing that you are developing, I have a bad news for you. It will not be used. It will not be implemented. Because maybe you are not solving any issue for them. Maybe you are, maybe you're actually creating problems that they do not want. Maybe you create complexities in applying that related to other technologies or other objectives they need. The world of fire engineering is just one piece of a building puzzle. There is so many objectives that need to be optimized for that when a fire solution is simple to adapt and does not interfere with the rest of the building, that, that will be always chosen over a solution that's great for fire but complex for everyone else. You need to have this in your mind and to understand that you need to communicate. You want to design a building with different than code requirements to some fundamental features. I don't know, fire resistance or some safety systems in it. Let's discuss that. You need to be able to explain why are you doing the choices you do and what will they achieve? And that's your only chance to get this design approved. You want to design a really great fire scenario for a building or you want to understand how the fire develops in your building, well, you cannot really do it alone. You need to work with the architect, with the structural engineers. You need to understand the foundation of the building, the goals they want to achieve by building that building to truly understand which aspects of the building are important and which may be changed to improve the fire safety. Because if you don't do that, you'll end up in a never-ending battle with someone who really doesn't like your solution and will do anything to stop it eventually stopping fire safety in the building. So yeah, my take from the podcast, from talking with fire experts for over a year, is to listen more and communicate better. And I think that's the missing puzzle we have. It seems we have all the others. So that's it for the one year episode. I wonder what the lessons will be in the second year of podcast and will this view change over time? I'm really excited to see what the next year will bring and uh, what is going to happen over here. One thing for sure, I'm definitely going to continue this project and there, there is no expiry date on the Fire Science Show. So you can really expect episodes come your way every Wednesday to help you communicate better, to help understand issues of others better and help building a fire safe world. Thank you very much for listening to this episode and all the previous episodes of the podcast. I really appreciate your presence. I appreciate your time spent with me in here. And I appreciate your support, all the kind messages, the reviews. 
it's all so nice and, and makes this job very, very worth it. Thank you, dear listener of the Fire Science Show. And yeah, see you here next Wednesday. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.